All right. So we are here for First Samuel, and I'm going to open us up with prayer, and we will go from there, okay? Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, this is a big day in the life of St. Andrew. But we come here right now for the next hour and 15 minutes to immerse ourselves in your word. To come to the stories of Samuel and, and, and the Israelites. To appreciate them for their own sake. For their revelation of who you are and who we humans are. But also that we can hear in them a message for our own lives. And um, even in these stories today, yes, that is truly possible. Um, so all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so here is where we left it. Okay, we finished the immediate stories about Eli and his sons. Okay. The two, the, the, the Philistines come out and challenge the Israelites to battle. There's a big fight. The Israelites lose. They decide to take the Ark out. Um, and that, the Ark of the Covenant, you know, look at my slides here, Scott. So, so here's the tabernacle. That's what it looks like. That's the Ark. That's the Ark of the Covenant. It has the poles. So remember, they carried it out there with them to battle to be like a, to be like a what? A shield, a magic talisman, a rabbit's foot, right? Something like that to carry the power of God. They're going to take the power of God out there with them, and by golly, then they would defeat the Philistines. But they do not defeat the Philistines. Instead, they lose, and the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant. And in the course of that, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, are killed. And when Eli, this is getting toward the end of chapter 5, I think, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 4, Eli um, hears about the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, and I think really the way it's written is, he hears about his sons, but it's when he hears that the Ark of the Covenant has been lost that he goes into shock and he falls over out of his chair, breaks his neck because he's a really huge guy, it says, and he dies. Okay? So Eli is out of the picture. Hophni, Hophni is out of the picture. Phineas is out of the picture. And the Ark of the Covenant is in the hands of the Philistines. And what is the basic mistake that the Israelites make in that story? What? They didn't, they didn't trust God. They thought they could they thought they could sort of make God do what they want to do by carrying the power of God supposedly. Kind of like in the movie The Raiders of the Lost Ark, honestly, out there with them, right? And then, yes, it it was it's a dishonoring of God. Really because the ark of the covenant, where should the ark where did God tell them the ark was to be kept? The ark was to be kept inside the tabernacle, inside the holiest of holies. It isn't movable so they could carry it out into battle. It's movable so that it could be moved with the tabernacle, which is this giant tent structure, moved from place to place when they were nomadic. And um, they just made a, they, they made a terrible decision in taking the ark out there. 
So this is, these little chapters here are sometimes called the ark narrative because they are the story, it's the story of the ark actually being lost. Okay? So I'm going to put up on the screen a map that will um, the tabernacle is in Shiloh. The battles take place in the area between Ebenezer and Aphek. That's where the ark is lost. And we're not going to come down to the story of how the Philistines take it to one of their cities. The first one being Ashdod. Ashdod, Gath, Gaza, Ekron. These are all Philistine cities at this time. And we will run into them time and again in the book of Samuel. Because the Philistines are the primary enemy of the Israelites during this time. They are the primary folks that the, that the uh, Israelites make war against and who make war on the Israelites. The Philistines were seafaring people who probably landed on the coast maybe 1,200 years before Jesus, coming down from the Aegean Sea area somewhere up there. Um, the Israelites were not a seafaring people. They uh, for the Israelites, an image of the sea was an image of chaos. They weren't big monsters in it and stuff. They weren't, they weren't seafaring people. They were nomadic on desert lands for much of their time. And so there was a lot of tension between the Israelites and the Philistines because this area is so small. This is tiny. I try to drive this home with people to say that you could take, basically, if, if you, you could take the promised land at this time. It's, it's sort of the modern state of Israel, but you're lopping off the, the big desert, Negev Desert down at, in the south. You could fit that between Denton and Waxahachie, downtown Fort Worth and Grand Prairie. It doesn't take long. Um, on one of our cruises, cruise trips to Israel, because we've done both cruise trips and land trips, we docked in Ashdod, in, wait, we docked in Haifa in the north, and there was a little bit of trouble in Ashdod, and so the ship wouldn't move. It stayed in Haifa, and we got to see Jerusalem by just getting on buses in Haifa and driving down to Jerusalem and getting to see a lot of the sights and so forth that day. So. It's not a big place, and they have really good road systems now, and it wasn't even a big place back then. So it creates a, a lot of tension in the small space, okay? So any questions before we plunge into chapter five with that little refresher about where we are? Okay, so let, let's look at chapter five. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, the map. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. Okay, so here's what you have to imagine. Just kind of picture a temple. It's probably a rectangular structure, decent sized. It's a temple to Dagon. Dagon would be an important, is an important Philistine god. Now, is there actu actually a god 
named Dagon. In truth, in reality. No. It's one of the pagan gods and goddesses that are the result of the spiritual yearnings of people. There's only one God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So in this temple to Dagon, there would be a big statue of Dagon, a big icon of some kind. Um, because in contrast to the practices of the pagans, the Israelites were not to make any graven images. Right? They weren't to try to create drawings of God or create sculptures of God because God, God is spirit. So how could they do that? And so in the Ten Commandments, that's why it says don't make any graven images. And why, if you look at ancient Hebrew art, it doesn't even have, they don't even have images of really anything except geometric figures and stuff. It's just not, uh, maybe palms or something like that, but really not animals people, none of that. They just, they just stayed away from it all. But for the pagans, they would carve statues. You've seen them, if you've been to any museum that has ancient stuff in it, you've seen all kinds of figurines. You have, there'll be statues, there'll be little bitty ones, mid-sized ones, painted ones, wooden ones, terracotta ones, stone ones, all kinds. So this is a picture of a big, pretty good sized statue of Dagon. I'm not sure how big. And they bring the Ark of the Covenant in using the poles, voila, right? Using the poles, and they set it in there. Yahweh's Ark stands sitting there right next to Dagon's statue. Verse 3 Well, when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord! Exclamation point! Right? So they go into the temple and what's happened now? The statue of Dagon has gone flat down, face down, in the dirt. Not good. How could it happen? What did it mean? So they took Dagon Stood the old boy back up, put him back in his place, right? Right? But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord! Exclamation point. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold to the temple. That's what that is. Only his body remained. So what do you think they think is happening? The power of the Israelites' God keeps knocking their statue down and breaking it apart. Whose God is more powerful? The statue or the box? <laughs> right, I mean, it, you know. They, so they bring the Ark of the Covenant and they set it down and the next thing they know, their, their big, beautiful statue to their God, Dagon, is lying face down on the ground. Come the next morning, now it's lying face down on the ground. Head broken off, hands broken off. Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. This is bad. This is bad. Verse 5 explains something. Hmm. Explains. It cut off, right? Aye.
How about now? Back on? Hi. Hi, Vey. So, <laughs> when I grow up, my parents, my, my parents had a book on the shelf called The Joy of Yiddish. And so I picked up a few Yiddish phrases in my childhood. That's one. <laughs> a word of exasperation. So, verse 5. So that is why... Okay, hang on. Hang on. Online people, hang on. Everybody, just hang on. I don't care, I'm switching batteries. That way I'll know it's not the batteries. Okay, how about now? Can you hear me? Okay. Very good. Let's try. Maybe it's verse 5 that's doing it. <laughs> oh, no. Verse 5. That is why to this day, this is the writer writing sometime, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus. 1 Samuel is put into its final form. That is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon, the Philistine priests, nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. Because that's where the head lay and the hands were found and stuff. So they're explaining a custom that arose from what? This dramatic incident. Verse 6. Yahweh's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. These would be skin things and other nasty things. In the Hebrew, the Hebrew here is it's it's old, and we don't really know, you know, exactly what these medical things always are. It's like in your Bible, there'll be people afflicted with leprosy. But the word really encompasses a lot of skin diseases other than what we know as Hansen's disease, right? So, but this is, this is not good. So the people are, are coming down with all of this, all of these afflictions, these tumors. And maybe they resemble the boils that Job was in, afflicted with. When the people of Ash, verse 7, when the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? Remember, all of these people at this time, including the Israelites, are polytheistic. Even the Israelites don't believe there is only one God. They all believe there are multiple gods and goddesses. They are loyal to one or more and they believe that the gods differ in their power. 
right? So um, here the power of Yahweh is being demonstrated by what happened to the statue and by the afflictions coming on the people. And so the leaders in Ashdod are very smart, right, in saying, well, we got to do this. We don't want this with us anymore. So what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? All right? Cool? Any questions? Anything? They answered, have the ark of the covenant, ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath. Huh. That's the answer. Just move it to another Philistine city. <laughs> right? So they're going to move it from Ashdod down here to Gath. They're going to move from one Philistine city to another Philistine city. I don't know that they really thought about this as long as they should have. Because sure enough, after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors, whatever those are. Right? But it's not good. So they sent the Ark of the God to Ekron. Notice, it doesn't seem that Ekron has having any choice about this. They're just moving it along. Right? Just moving it along. Wait, send it up the road. Up the road, off we go. So now it's going to go from Bath up to Ekron. We got this thing. We won this thing in battle. It seemed like a great victory. But now... It's a hot potato, <laughs> right? So, as the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. Now, what's their idea? Well, the Israelites took it into battle, you see, and they lost it on purpose. <laughs> They lost it on purpose so that the Philistines would capture it and take it back to their cities where their cities would be devastated by the power of the God of Israel represented or contained in this ark. That make sense? I mean, I could see people, people thinking something like that. Sure. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. So Ashdod, Gath, Ekron, um, the power of God is what is is unleashed on these on these places chapter 6 when the ark of yahweh had been in philistine territory how long seven, seven months so this is not a short period of time this is this is taking a while to go from place to place to place the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, right? These are the intermediaries between the people and, and their gods, and said, what shall we do with the ark of Yahweh? 
because that's, this, is, that's the name of the Israelites. God is Yahweh. Tell us how we should send it back to its place. And they said, Well, if you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it back to him without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. This is to appease the God whose ark they have been holding on to. Then you will be healed, and you will know why his hand and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines ask, what guilt offering should we send him? What do we need to go along to get this, get this thing out of our hands, get God off our backs, get the Israelite God off our backs? So they replied, five gold tumors, these are, that's a measure of weight of some kind, and five gold rats. Okay. I've, I've, I've never seen gold rats. I've seen other rats, but never gold rats. But obviously, obviously, what we're to get from this is that they're ready to send a lot of gold back to the Philistines, I mean back to the Israelites, in order to get this ark off their hands. Scott. Yes, my love. Okay, so let me tell you what Patty just said. Pat, um, let me explain, first of all, what the Septuagint is. The Septuagint, S-E-P-T-U-A-G-I-N-T, the Septuagint, is a translation of the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek. That was done in Alexandria, Egypt, 150 to 200 years before Jesus, because there was a very large Jewish community in Alexandria most of them did not read or speak Hebrew, but they did read or speak Greek because Greek was the primary language of the world. And if you didn't, if it wasn't your first language, it was certainly your second, like English. It was the English equivalent at, you know, in the ancient world at that time. And so Jewish scholars translated the Hebrew scriptures and some other writings, the Hebrew scriptures, into Greek. Your New the New Testament writers that you read, and that when they quote the Old Testament, are, are they quoting the Hebrew? No, they're quoting the Greek. They're quoting the Septuagint, okay? It's called the Septuagint, that which means seven or 70, because of this really cool legend. The way the legend worked was, was this, I just love this. So the legend was, that they decided to do this, and they picked 70, their 70 best Jewish scholars. And they, these Jewish scholars took the Hebrew scrolls, 70 copies each, into their room, and they made their translation of them, independently, individually. And when they brought them all back together, they found that they were all exactly the same. It's a cool story. Not likely, but it's a cool story. <laughs> okay, so it, it's the kind of thing that speaks to the reverence that the Jews had for their scriptures, right? And their recognition of, of God being the one standing behind the scriptures, that this is God's word, or as, as Paul put it in 2 Timothy, um, all scripture is God-breathed. And he was referring, of course, to the Hebrew scriptures, because that's all there was. 
in Paul's day. <clears throat> so, when you compare the, the Greek Septuagint with the Hebrew text, the version most people use is called the Masoretic text, I won't get into that story, there are places where they differ. For example, in the, Sep, in the, in the Hebrew text, in a famous passage in Isaiah, um, the woman who gives birth to the Messiah, kind of, sort of, is really merely a young woman. In the Septuagint, it's Parthenos. She is a virgin, right? So what Patty's saying is in Septuagint, it's not only tumors that are sent upon these Philistine city, but also a plague of rats. Okay, and how could that be? Well, because you're, you're translating these languages into other languages, and it's, it's unrealistic to think that they would all, that they would exactly match up, okay? So, that was cool. So you gotta remember about the Septuagint, because it really, it's why, it's why if you open your New Testament and you see the Old Testament quoted and you find the passage in your Old Testament, they're not going to be exactly the same because the Old Testament is the Hebrew brought into English. The New Testament is Greek Old Testament brought into Greek New Testament brought into English. Okay? Yes, my dear. I have an online question. Yeah. This Whoa. Is, this is from Lynn Lawton, and she asks, some of these passages lead some people to question, if God sends cancers and bad things to our world, how do we as Christians answer those concerns? Hmm. Okay, so Lynn's question is, there are some bad things happening here, and it's certainly written in a way that says God sent these bad things. So does God send us cancer and and that sort of thing. I think there's a couple of approaches to that question. One is to one is to trust God in what God does and to realize that whenever we speak of God we speak of Jesus because there, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is one. They are one and they share a will and a purpose. So, so if you're going to say God did something, you need to be ready to say Jesus did something. But there are passages in the Old Testament that remind us that God is, God is, that we can't contain God, that God is dangerous in some ways. That God is not always ready to meet our expectations of who God should be. I wrote, um, let me see, where might it be? I'm gonna go, to, I put something in, in a note here in the past few days when I was working on this.
Okay, this is by Bruce um, Birch, I, I think, who was writing on this whole business in First Samuel. And I thought it was really good. So maybe in response, I will read this because I could show you other passages. This is the one, these strange passages where uh, Moses' wife cuts off the foreskin of her son and, and knocks it on Moses' foot to protect him from God or something like that. It's very weird, okay? <laughs> yeah, it is, it is. Okay, so here's what Bruce Birch wrote. He's, he's a really a very good scholar. He said, this is not the portrait of a warm, fuzzy, friendly deity. The God of the Ark story in 1 Samuel 4 to 6 is mysterious, dangerous, and above all, possessed of sovereign freedom. This is not the portrait of God favored by positive thinking, make God appealing church growth strategies. Hear that? Quote, God is so good, close quote, is a well-known praise song crooned repeatedly. Well, yes, God is good, but God is also holy, mysterious, and powerful. This story reminds us that there is a side of the reality of God that cannot be reduced to a tool for providing positive life experiences. Relationship to God can be demanding and even risky. Manipulation and management of holy symbols, which is what happened with the ark. That's what the Israelites did. Manipulation and management of holy symbols for our own ends can be downright dangerous. So, this is one. I have a book on my shelf that is the theology of Exodus. And one whole chapter in it is devoted to this, to this dangerous God. Because you come upon these passages, you know. And I could show you some around Jesus when he speaks to the Syrophoenician woman. And you're going like, well, like what? And what? That doesn't meet our expectations of who we think God must be to, to give us our warm, fuzzy feelings. So do I think God sends cancer? No, I don't think God sent. I have cancer. Do I think God sent me cancer? No. Why would God do that? Why would God send me cancer? Well, I don't think God sends us any of these troubles we have in our lives. We have enough trouble without God having to send them to us. A lot of them we make. A lot of them come from a broken world. A lot of them is because we spent most of human existence trying to kill each other rather than trying to figure out how to heal each other. So, um, but boy, Lynn, those are, those are good questions and, and we need to avoid, what do we need to avoid? Cheap answers. Um, one of my favorite Old Testament writers, whose name is escaping me right now, um, said, look, when it comes to a question like Lynn asked, we have, we don't have nothing to say. We, we do have something to say, but we don't, aren't able to say everything that we think we might like to say. It's, it's, just, it's just the truth. And the only way that you can explain everything is by taking God and going shoo, and then you make a God, what is fam uh, famously called a God who is too small. Okay? So, don't, al don't always think that you're going to find a logical explanation 
for everything that happens in the Bible. God doesn't bend to our ability to reason things out in all cases. Okay? Any follow-up to that? Yes. I think we want to see God as a healing God always. As a what? Always healing. A healing God. Always healing our cancer, our you know, whatever disease it might be. And sometimes people get well, sometimes people don't get well. And sometimes it's hard as humans. I mean, we, we forget that the world is not perfect, that we're broken, the world's broken, there is sickness, there is illness. Um, but we want it, we want God to come in and fix it, right? The God of fixing things. The, the God of the magic wand, yes, exactly. fixing all things. And we, we tend to have the wrong time frames in mind, okay? <clears throat> we don't, I, I think it's hard for us to really live this life in the knowledge that this life, which is important and valuable and to be filled with joy and to be filled with goodness, is only a small portion of our existence. That when, that when, even when our life comes to an end here, that is not our end. That's why we can obviously be plagued with all kinds of little worries and anxieties, but the really big worry about what's going to happen to me or where am I going or stuff, no, we are people of hope that transcends the fact that bad things happen to us. And the fact that good people we love contract diseases or have accidents or illnesses that make no sense to us. And of course we want to ask why. And we don't get satisfactory answers. And I think one of the most unsatisfactory way to approach that is to think that, well, God sent all this to you. I can remember a woman, I've got to name who it is, here at St. Andrew, years and years ago, oh, she lost a baby after five days. And she said it was so hurtful to her when people would come up and said, well, God just wanted to bring a little angel back to home. And she said, and I told her, you, that is hurtful. That, that isn't it. God didn't, God didn't kill your baby. You know, called your little baby back home after five days. It's one of the big sadnesses and brokennesses in this world. So what are you left with at the end? You're left with the final statement in Revelation. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Because when Jesus comes back, all the world will be healed. And that brokenness and that hurt and that grief and those tears and that mourning, Revelation 21, will all be swept away. But until then, as long as we live between the times, I don't have that chart with me, but as long as we live between the times, like we looked at in 1 Corinthians when we were doing it, it in here, we, we, we are left with these questions, and they're understandable. And so sometimes, what, what should we do with somebody? Just sit with them. Job's friends, when he's afflicted with all this stuff, I mean, we know why it happens, but his friends do the right thing. They just come and sit with him. They don't try to explain it all. After, I, think he's, uh, yeah. I, think he, I think we forget that he's with us regardless. When, you, when you're sick, he's with you. Yes. He you, so yes. What, what a blessing that is. 
What's the book of Job about? It's, the book of Job is about a man who is afflicted with all kinds of terrible things. I mean, really. It's, it's, it's crazy. Does he lose his faith in God? No, he does not. You know, so anyway, okay. So, all that from five gold tumors and five gold rats. <laughs> According to the number of the Philistine rulers, why five? Because they only have, how many? One, two, three, four. There's a fifth city that's not on this map that is a Philistine city. And so there are five Philistine rulers. Because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. So make models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying the country and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? Interesting. I'm so often asked about Pharaoh and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. If you want to harden your heart against God, you can. If you want to shake your fist at God, you can. You can shake your fist at God all the way to the end, all the way to your very doom, if you like. Love does not encompass robots. And what God wants from us is to love God and to love others. And that has to come from a willing heart. And if you don't want that, okay. So the priests are... They get this right. They say, why, do you, why are you hardening your hearts as the Egyptians did and Pharaoh did? When Israel's God did harshly with them, did they not send the Israel out so that they could go on their way? Because in the end, the Egyptians gave in. Kind of, sort of. Right? So they tell, the, the priests tell them, now then get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved, have given birth. and pin them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart and in a chest beside it put the gold objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. The five models of these tumors in gold and the five golden rats are going to be in a chest on the cart next to the ark of the covenant. Send it on its way. So what's happening? But keep watching it. So what are they doing actually? What they're doing is they take these two cows, presumably cows that have calved, I guess, because they're stronger, having given birth. They keep them penned up so that they're strong and... and um, So they're going to have these two cows attached to the cart and then they're going to put that on the road and let it go and see where it goes. Mona. Okay, I, Mona's helping me out with my animal <laughs> husbandry here. Yes, so 
cattle who have cows who have given birth are unruly. No, they don't want to leave their calves. And they don't want to leave their calves behind. They've never been hooked up to a cart before. And they've never been attached to a cart. So when they attach it to a cart, if they go somewhere, they're going to go with fervor. God's leading them. Because that's the point, you see. So the point of the cart being not being driven by the Philistines is that it's going to be God who directs where this cart goes. That's the point. I'm glad you're filling um, <laughs> for, for Bob Kerr, who is normally my animal husbandry expert, okay, with such things. I'll remember that, Mona. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, so they say, send it on its way. But keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory toward Bet Shemesh, then Yahweh has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us, but that it happened to us by chance. Well, that is really interesting too. Chance is not something that ancient people, you know, really focused on very much they tended to think that the gods were the first cause of all things that happened. It's why it rains today and doesn't rain tomorrow. The wind's from the east as opposed to the wind's from... Why does all that happen? Why does the tree fall on that guy? Because the gods did it. It's why at Qumran, um, a Jewish community on the Dead Sea, their rules of leadership was if you had been in an accident or afflicted with a disease, you couldn't hold a leadership position. Why? Because if a tree fell on you or you had been um, afflicted by a disease, well, you know, that meant, you know, you had sinned and the gods were punishing you. So, you know, now we know that, of course, that, that isn't it. But... It's so interesting to us by chance. So even in the ancient world, there are, you know, it's, it, these things are complicated. And they, and they recognize some of that complexity. But if the cart goes to a Jewish, to one of the Israelite towns, then it's God who did this. And if not, well, all the rats and the disgusting tumors and the death all just happened to them by chance. So they did this. They took two such cows and hitched them to the cart and penned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart and along with it the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumors. Then the cows went straight up the road toward Bet Shemes. Okay. Keeping on the road and lowing. Is that mooing there? Mona? Yes. yes. <laughs> Mooing all the way. They did not turn to the right. They did not turn to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Bet Shemesh, which is it's not like borders today, but they took it as far as they could without getting too close to the Israelite city, and they saw the cart heading right into Bet Shemesh. Okay, so now the ark is finally coming home to the Israelites. All should be well. Right? Well, now the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley, 
And when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart, sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Right there on the spot. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord, together with the chest containing the gold objects, and placed them on the large rock. And on that day the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to Yahweh. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all this and then returned that same day to Ekron. Okay, this is all done. Philistines have washed their hands of it. It's back in the hands of the Israelites. The Israelites, led by the Levites, which is the tribe of priests, even though it's not like where the tabernacle is. They have offered up to this big rock. They've made burnt offerings to God and done all kinds of things. Verse 17. Now these are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as a guilt offering to Yahweh, one each for Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon. Ashkelon is the one that's not on the map. Gath and Ekron. Those five cities will be featured in 1 Samuel going forward. And the number of the gold rats was according to the number of Philistine towns belonging to the five rulers, the fortified towns with their country villages. The large rock on which the Levites sent the ark of the Lord is a witness this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. I've been to Israel, haven't ever looked for that rock. Might be there. I, you know, big rocks tend not to move very much. Okay, so it must be the end. Like at the end of a movie, you know? But no. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow Yahweh had dealt them. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, who can stand in the presence of Yahweh, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? The Israelites have, they abused the ark of the covenant. They sent it into battle, thinking that they could control the power of God and turn it to their advantage in their battle with the Philistines. Now that they have it back, they casually, I think, probably, looked inside the ark um, and it takes me back to what I just read from Bruce Birch. God is mysterious, God is holy, God is dangerous, these are not holy people, they are taking God for granted. And they are losing sight of the big responsibility that they carry as the family of Abraham. With the ark and with the tabernacle, it was evidenced by Eli's toleration of his wicked sons. It was evidenced by the wicked sons' behavior with um, the offerings by their behavior with um, 
the women in, in even inside the temple, um, this whole episode says so much about the depth to which Israel has fallen. They need <laughs> they need a rescuer. They need they need someone to get Israel and the Israelites back on the track toward God. And look at verse 20. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord? They are being reminded that the answer really is none of them can stand in the presence of the Lord. None of them can stand and look inside the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark is not just another box. It doesn't just contain, you know, the, the stones of the Ten Commandments. It is... And they, they have just forgotten all of that. And so they ask the question, to whom will the Ark go up from here? Because it's in Beth Shemesh. What should they now do with the Ark of the Covenant? When these stories were passed on from generation to generation among the Israelites, and written down and passed on and written down and passed on and edited and passed on. What do you think the message is here? Is it really about... Is, what, what do you think is the message here? Don't trifle with God. What? Don't trifle with God. Ah. Don't trifle with God. Don says. I like that. Don't trifle with God. Don't think. It's, it's like the George Carlin. <laughs> Don't you love that intro? It's like the George Carlin bit about Buddy Christ. You ever seen that? You should if you have it. It's about, it's, it's got it's a little statue of Jesus. He's all smiling and everything and George is going on. A, it's in a movie about Buddy Christ. Even Jesus is not to be trifled with, diminished, think that we can control because Jesus is God. And if you read the, see, we, we don't, there are a lot of places in the Gospels we tend not to read because even Jesus has some very surprising moments for people who think the whole thing is nothing but a big, a lot of pink confection and stuff. Do not trifle with God. Take this seriously. You can't bend God to your whims. You are to bend yourself to God. And I think that's as true now as it ever was. We, we can, we, I think it's easy in our culture to, to, to forget that. See, there's two words to used to describe God. One is that God is transcendent. 
God is other. God is big, big, big. God is holy, mysterious. And then the God can be imminent. I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T, imminent. That means right here with us. That's and we all the time are trying to hold those two things together and not reduce it simply to Buddy Christ or a God that they can send out like a rabbit's foot um, to win this battle against the Philistines. And so I can picture them all running over, you know, they're all excited, there's the Ark of the Lord and they're climbing all over it and they're looking inside it and it should never have left the tabernacle. Never did before. So, any thoughts? It makes me wonder like, well, how do, how do, how do, I, how do I trifle with God in my own life? If I were preaching a sermon on this, that's what I would have to spend time considering. How do I trifle with God in my own life. If I, if I think that all I want from God is to do what I want God to do, that's, that can't be right. I'm a very flawed person. We're all flawed. We're fallen. We don't see things clearly. And we we tend to diminish God. That's why the famous book was written, whose author, a name I can't remember, Your God is Too Small. It was written, I don't know, by now, 70 years ago. Your God is Too Small. Because that's what we tend to do. We tend to make God small, who makes perfect sense to us and feeds our church growth strategies and the rest of it, right? But these, some of these stories remind you that, no, no, it's, it's, and, and you have to ask, when you come upon these, don't you have, feel like you have to ask yourself, am I going to trust God? Am I going to trust Jesus? Even with these stories of events that I don't understand. J.B. Phillips? J.B. Phillips, yes, wrote, Your God is Too Small. Also did a great translation, paraphrase of the New Testament. You're, you, 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 that's what we have to ask ourselves. That's a mistake that this whole arc narrative is about. And the incidents are not, are not over. So, verse 21. Because the people of Bet Shemesh, now they want rid of it. Then they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. <laughs> right? In all, this ark narrative is a sad story. Sad story. Look at for, So it, it finishes up here in chapter 7. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took, and took up the ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. Finally, something right happens. There's no, the, these, two, these two gentlemen, Abinadab and Eleazar, do not play any ongoing big role in the Old Testament, but they are priests. And the son is consecrated, meaning make, made holy. They, they're doing what they can 
to recognize the holiness of the Ark of the Covenant. The townspeople aren't running over to pick off the lid and look inside, selling tickets, whatever it might be. They brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill. The temples in the ancient world were all built on hilltops. Solomon's temples built on a hilltop because that's the closest you could get to where God is because the God, God is up there. Go up there and you will run into God right up there. So they brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to guard the ark of the Lord. The ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. <clears throat> Who do you think brings the ark of the covenant to Jerusalem? It's David. Jerusalem isn't even an Israelite town at this point. At this point, um, Jerusalem is a Jebusite city, but it will be David. It will be David who brings, and that story lies a good way ahead. Okay? So, any final thoughts or questions about the Ark narrative? Yes? Yes, sir? You know, yeah, what happened to the gold? Well, you know, the, it goes into, where would it go? Probably going to the temple treasury, tabernacle treasury, into the temple treasury. You know, in 70 AD, when the Romans destroy the temple in Jerusalem, they take back a lot of booty, a lot of gold, a lot of wealth back to Jerusalem. And on the Arch of Titus in Rome, there's a depiction of a cart pulling a menorah which represents, I think, that wealth. And it's believed by quite a few scholars that the Colosseum in Rome was paid for with the wealth brought back from Jerusalem because it's brought back in about 70 and the Colosseum opens about 10 years later. Interesting thought. Yes, Charlotte? Yeah? He just disappears out of the story. Except he reappears with a new name, Ichabod Crane, in a place called Sleepy Hollow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, in these stories, I mean, some people play significant roles, right? Other people, they just come and go. But it's a fascinating thing, isn't it, that, they're, that the names of these minor folks in the terms of the big events are kept for us and it, it grounds us in the reality of these stories right that these things actually happened yes well I guess it doesn't but you know what he did <laughs> and who is who remind me who in the line of Eli who's Ichabod So it, she had a son named Ichabod. Huh. Good question. Look that up for us. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, Charlotte. 
What happened to Ichabod? Maybe we'll, I don't know, maybe we'll come across him yet. Somebody's probably Googling it right now in this very room. Okay? So, so let's just a little... Let, So now we're going to encounter the grown Samuel. Right? If you go back to chapter 3, when God called Samuel as a boy, and remember it said that the word of God was rare, and that Samuel was going to, the word of God through Samuel was going to make the ears of the Israelites tingle. Things are going to change. One thing that you get from the ark narrative is the depth to which the Israelites have fallen. Kind of paired up with that last verse in the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did whatever pleased them. So you kind of know that things need to get on an upswing, I guess we might say. So chapter 7, second half of verse 2. Then all the people of Israel turned back to Yahweh. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to Yahweh with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods. And the Ashtoreths, that is one of the foreign gods. And commit yourselves to Yahweh and serve Him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and their Ashtaroths. These would be the figurines and the altars to all these pagan gods and goddesses. And served Yahweh only. It is an expression of a communal repentance. Repentance, which I will be preaching about on Sunday, is a 180 degree turn. And that's what they've said they're going to do. No longer are we going to worship the Baals and the Ashtaroths and the Asherahs and the rest of them. We're going to turn 180 degrees and we're going to serve God. The Lord God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The one who brought us up out of Egypt. And that's a dramatic turn. It isn't, repentance isn't simply saying you're sorry. That's a different word. That's contrition. Contrition is saying you're, you, you regret what you did. But repentance is the turn to go, to be going in one direction, to turn and go in a completely different direction. And so um, Samuel challenges them in verse 3. This is what this really means. If you're really going to serve Yahweh, you've got to get rid of all these pagan gods and goddesses. Because what is one of the big Ten Commandments? You are to have no other gods before me. They weren't to be like their neighbors who had all kinds of gods and goddesses. Even in Jesus' day, you walk into a Roman household or a Greek household, there would be typically like a curio cabinet in the corner, filled with all kinds of figurines, the different gods and goddesses, who families would favor one or another, or people would favor one or another, that picked their favorite. And I remember in one of the movies, I think it was called Risen About Jesus, the um, Roman commander, um, his, he kept a little figurine of the Roman god Mars, the god of war. And that was the god that he 
I guess, sort of prayed to, sadly. Okay, so Samuel says, look, this is, this is what we're talking about. This is repentance. You're going to turn 180 degrees. You're going to give up all these foreign gods and goddesses. Then Samuel said, assemble Israel at Mizpah. Mizpah is a little area. Um, it's like right there. It's about, I don't know, 12 miles northwest of Jerusalem, something like that, which places it's kind of in the center of things. So people could come from the south, people could come from the north. It's on that, that hilly spine that runs north and south in Israel. Samuel said, assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with Yahweh for you. He's going to plead to God on behalf of the people. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before Yahweh. It's an offering. Water is precious in this world. Precious. There's not enough to go around. There's not a, you know, you should see what the Jordan River looks like. It's not the Jordan River anymore. It's the Jordan Creek. Really. It is, there's not a lot of water that flows through the Jordan River anymore. This, the Dead Sea is shrinking because there's not enough water coming into it because the people in the lands need water, and these are areas that are so dry. They drew water and poured it out before Yahweh. On that day they fasted. Another expression of their commitment, their recommitment to God. And this is, commu this is the community. That's what you need to see, the community. And there they confessed, we have sinned against Yahweh. And oh, they had in the ways recounted to us in Samuel and in many other ways. It is a true story that one Sunday here at St. Andrew, after we did a prayer of confession, there was a person who came to a staff member and said, I, I don't like it when we do these prayers of confession because I don't really have anything to confess. <laughs> and that person is woefully unself-aware. In my experience, the people who understand the depth of their sinfulness are the people who are closest to God. Does that make sense? You read any of Sister Mother Teresa's autobiography. This is a woman who struggled. And for you and me, we see her, we think, well, she's, 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 like, she's like mini Jesus. She knew, she knew how far away she was from who God had made her to be. We have sinned against Yahweh. What a wonderful expression from this community. We have sinned against Yahweh, indeed. When you sin, you don't really sin against other people, right? You might hurt other people, but you sin against God. That's what sin is. It, it, it is a way to express our the offenses 
that we make in God's eyes the separation between us and God um, that began with that rebellion in the garden. We have sinned against Yahweh and now Samuel was serving as the leader of Israel at Mizpah. So we're going to end there and Samuel is the leader. He is the last of the judges of Israel. Um, and now the air conditioning shuts off. Isn't that weird? Now is Samuel living in Mizpah at the time? And he's come down from Shiloh? They're at, least, they're at least assembling at Mizpah. Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if he's actually moved his residence or not, but he might. So is the temple The tabernacle's still there. The still, still, still in Shiloh. But the ark is not. The ark is in Kiriath-Jerim. Okay? Because that, that's where it is. It stays there 20 years, we were, we were told, right? Okay. Scott, would you um, lift up as we close Jan Brooks's surgery, hip surgery tomorrow at 6 a.m. and also for uh, Jamie and Andy's son, Trey. Okay. improvements, but still very critical. So we want to lift up Jan Brooks, regular part of this class on Tuesday, who's getting hip replacement tomorrow. And the Ibsens, Andy and Jamie, and their son, Trey, who has been fighting a deadly sepsis infection. And it was very, very touch and go. He's making small, little improvements. He's in his 40s, I guess, early 40s. And so um, we want to pray for Trey and all of the Ibsens as well. So will you join me in prayer? Gracious Lord, as we leave here today, we do lift up Trey, we do lift up Jan, we lift up all of those who are in need of your comfort and healing and, and we do love you and we do trust you. We put our faith in you. We may not understand all the things that happen in this world or all the things that happen to us. We acknowledge that you are indeed holy, glorious, majestic, even dangerous. And we humble ourselves before you. We confess to you our sins. And we come to you as your people. For you are indeed our God. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.